Hello, hello, and welcome to the um, second and final uh, Belgium lecture of the 2013-2014 academic year. Let's say just a few things about the lecture series uh, to introduce Dan, and then we have a musical welcome. The uh, earlier band uh, or choir that welcomed us, the Oxford Welcome Choir, actually split up between lectures. <laughs> And this is the Falasso Singers. This is kind of a, a changed group. It's kind of, you know, things happen, you know, people conflict and so on. So something on the, on the lecture series, this is to honor Eunice Belgum, whose life was uh, cut short. Uh, she had uh, completed her philosophy major uh, here at St. Olaf, went on to do the PhD at Harvard. She taught at Trinity College and William and Mary. Uh, these lectures were founded to honor her passion and interest in philosophy. I think our current um, Belgium lecturer very much meets the concerns that Eunice had. Eunice's work, her principal work, her dissertation, which was later published, uh, was on both consciousness and character. Her topic, her focus was on, in Greek, it's akrasia, and this is the tendency uh, to... Um, do that which you know to be wrong. Uh, something I've never done. Uh, none of you, I'm sure. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> uh, oh dear, oh dear, uh, God help us. In any case, uh, this is a conundrum that uh, Aristotle and before him Plato and before him Socrates struggled with, and you find it in the modern era with um, Hare and others. So it's, it's, it's a difficult problem. Um, I want to say just two one more thing about uh, Eunice, and then I'll move to Dan, uh, and then our singers. Um, w the thing about Eunice, I read from her uh, dissertation and, and book. I won't do it again uh, now, but for those that weren't here, I, I want to s bring to, you, to, to your attention the fact that she found power and energy and enthusiasm and excitement for philosophy in the context of friendships and in with peers and the professor-student relationship. And I hope, uh, some of you are from Carleton, uh, most of St. Olaf, but I hope wherever you are <laughs> that you find that same joy and enthusiasm and excitement, whether you're taking one philosophy course or you take none and your roommate is taking a philosophy course and can't stop talking and you're enjoying it. But I'm hoping you find that excitement of thinking philosophically with friends and in, in a community. So it's to her honor that we are holding these. I might actually pause now and ask us to just give a round to thank the, uh, her family and sponsors for this uh, establishment. Dan Robinson, uh, his credentials and so on are, this would take me an hour and 20 minutes to go through. Uh, it's in the brochure. He's the author of over 40 books. He's made major headway on lots of very difficult psychological and philosophical problems. Um, he's one of the few um, philosophers who is an expert in uh, psychology and neuroscience and one of the few neuroscientists and psychologists who's an expert in philosophy. So really we're getting the best of both worlds here. He has uh, some of the books, uh, by the way, are available outside. One of my favorite four are Wild Beasts and Idle Humors. This is on the insanity defense. Some of you who may be on the edge of insanity might want to read up on um, how you're doing. Uh, <laughs> Praise and Blame, very uh, significant, very important publication. Consciousness and Mental Life, 
uh, a heroic, uh, brilliant work. How is nature possible? That's a great title. This is on Kant's project in the first critique. Uh, just say one more thing. Uh, Dan Robinson is someone who's been uh, a mentor and a model to me of uh, ideal philosophical reflection. He really thinks with passion, concern. He looks for the big picture. Um, he is the most um, capacious and well-read person I've ever, ever known. Uh, he also has a bit of magic. I don't know whether he's going to bring that to bear here. He's, a, he's got a bit of the Dumbledore, Merlin, Gandalf in him. I, at least that's the only explanation I can think of as why I would sometimes leave notes for him in this old graveyard in Oxford, just hoping he would see them from time to time, like loved that book review or really liked the latest. Did you ever um, stumble across those? Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 well. Um, yeah, yes, um, well, um, um, getting back on track, um, bell, tick tock, um, we, I now present the Philoso Singers to welcome you properly. No music, no boom yada yada, um, but uh, thank you, Charles, for exaggerating my virtues and staying off the vices. <laughs> thank you all for coming. I thank the college again, the philosophy faculty, for inviting me here. I said in the earlier lecture that uh, it's quite an honor to have one's name included with other names on this list of distinguished speakers. My topic this evening is the topic of character. A useful introduction to this second lecture is by way of a brief account of a small part I played in the development of that now burgeoning industry known as positive psychology. It began with a telephone call to my house from Professor Martin Seligman, one of the world's authorities on the subject of depression, and also, at the time, a recent past president of the American Psychological Association. He asked if I would be available to spend several days <laughs> in the Grand Cayman Islands 
<laughs> to help lay the foundations for something he referred to as positive psychology. Robinson being a fairly common name, I was certain that he had reached the wrong one. <laughs> but eager not to offend, I suggest that there surely were people much more qualified than I. Sensing that my hesitation was causing confusion, I quickly added that I knew nothing about positive psychology and wondered what it was about the Grand Cayman Islands that established that location as the right venue. Friends could have informed Dr. Seligman that I'm not much of a Grand Cayman Island person. <laughs> well, as it turned out, he did reach the intended Robinson, and I did join a small group assembled by Marty Seligman for the purpose of developing content for this new initiative called Positive Psychology. <coughs> Incompetent though I was, by the time I reached the Cayman Islands, I at least knew what the term referred to. You see, the new millennium was rapidly approaching. Now look here. With all due respect to the American Psychological Association, that's a worthy professional association, I, I could have bet they'd do something like this. <laughs> With the year 2000 just over the horizon, the American Psychological Association was persuaded that it specifically should contribute something called positive psychology to complement what it took to be its signal achievements in dealing with issues of mental illness. That is, since we've done such wonderful things for the mentally ill, well, with this new millennium, let's now do something for people who are quite normal but are not achieving the full positive effects that normal life otherwise would enable. Do you understand the problem of keeping a straight face when something like this com comes your way? That is, APA would now wish to provide healthy and psychologically wholesome persons with quite positive steps for making a normal life even more productive and satisfying. Well, thus informed as to what was envisaged, I was now more certain than ever that Dr. Seligman could have found a far more useful contributor, even committing himself to one named Robinson. That is, if he just said, it's got to be that name, he still could have got a far more qualified, <laughs> probably scores of more qualified people, with Robinson either as a first or a second name. Well, we're both Robinson Robinson. You know. <laughs> But no, I was arguably the right Robinson all along, for my responsibility, to use Dr. Seligman's terms, was to lay out, as he put it, what the ancient Greek regarded as a good life. I did ask whether Dr. Seligman had a specific Greek in mind, <laughs> for the ancient world was not of one voice in a matter of this kind, and moreover, a less than cheerful fate had awaited two of the most famous Greeks who had taken up the subject. One of them was executed, and the second one got out of town before it happened to him too. <laughs> However, as I had written at some length on one of the two, I assumed that Aristotle was the Greek he had in mind all along. 
Having something of an addiction in the matter of examining and discussing Aristotle's <coughs> philosophy, I accepted the invitation with unfeigned appreciation. Well, ours was a hardy group assembled in what for me was a quite strange setting. As my dear wife predicted, I was the only one on the island wearing a tie and jacket. <laughs> she had urged me to take advantage of the situation and some, spend some of the time in the water. The best I could do to satisfy her concern was to take long showers. <laughs> my colleagues, in addition to Professor Seligman, included Bob Nozick, a distinguished Harvard philosopher, now and lamentably deceased, Edward Diener from the University of Illinois, a specialist in testing people, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Professor Mahali Csikszentmihalyi from the University of Chicago, who had written a very interesting book titled Flow, the Psychology of Optimum Experience, and Kathleen Jameson, who was at the time the director of the Annenberg Center. The meetings were sponsored by the Gallup Organization, and we were pleased to have as our host Dr. George Gallup himself. I couldn't understand what that was all about. Uh, obviously, we were soon going to have tests of <coughs> life satisfaction and Gallup scales. And so some of these things always have to be explained to me. The business of the very first evening was my responsibility, for I was to examine that part of Aristotle's thought, that part of Aristotle's psychology, attempting to identify the nature of a flourishing life and the means by which it might at least be approximated, if not reached. The best I could do at the time is offer a sketch, one that I'll share with you in a few minutes. But first I should say something about the reactions elicited as I rehearsed Aristotle's account of moral excellence and the relationship between the character of the polis and the character of the person. It was obvious to me that although my colleagues were attentive and polite, my remarks seemed to create some uneasiness. In the discussion that followed, I discovered that the source of concern was the seeming mismatch between the realities of our contemporary world and this long ago world of ancient Greece. In fact, it was worse than what I'm depicting. Uh, when you've been doing the sort of thing I do for a half century, you can usually pick up on the faces of an audience <laughs> whether something is amiss. You might not know exactly what it is, but you know something's there. And as I'm talking about the dead Greek and all this business, Nozick and Seligman are looking at each other, like if they don't do something soon, their pet parakeet will be killed. You know, it's one of these kind of, uh, and, and, and Marty was honest enough. He, he said, Dan, you, you realize that, you know, if we present this sort of thing to APA Central, we'll, we'll be laughed out of the hall. And I was quite uh, offended by this. I wasn't asked to do something that would please APA Central. 
I'm not even sure that would be lawful. I had been asked to do something about dead Greeks. Um, my closest chums, you know, there's Charles and Jill and my wife, a few other people, and then these dead Greeks. Um, so it, it fell to Bob Nozick to return the following morning with a modified and updated model, less indebted to the main points I had raised the previous night. It was one of these sort of being fobbed off gently with wonderfully done, Dan, really very interesting. Bob, maybe you can you know, spend a bit of time tonight updating this and <laughs> I knew what was going on, come on. Um, well, Bob Nozick did arrive the next day with a pentel in hand and a very large sketch pad. He began his account by promising to focus on what is now an essential element in a flourishing life, but one, as he made clear, that Aristotle had not considered. I was being gently teased. Dan, he asked, did Aristotle have anything interesting to say about job satisfaction? <laughs> Waiting for the giggling to subside, I gathered my limited resources and said that I was unaware of Aristotle, at least in the surviving works, directly addressing the question of job satisfaction, but I was fairly confident he would have some questions about it once he understood the meaning of the term. I pose the following thought experiment. Consider the commanding officer of one of the Nazi concentration camps operating during World War II. In recent months, his efficiency scores have been moving in the wrong direction. There has been a quite dramatic decrease in the number of innocent men, women, and children sent to death in gas chambers. Fearful that his performance will result in reassignment to the Eastern Front, where Russians will kill him, he consults the camp positive psychologist in an attempt to recover that job satisfaction that had once served him so well. The point, of course, is that on Aristotle's account, the aim of an activity cannot be mere satisfaction, or as Aristotle would have put it, not everything desired is desirable. Well, the Pentel was deployed once more, and job satisfaction was at least temporarily bracketed. Um, I now pick up where my previous lecture ended, that is, with that aspect of our human nature that renders us fit for a civic form of life. Conscious of the comparable conditions of sentiment, motivation, desire, and intelligence that we share with others. Absent that assumption, there cannot be a civic form of life. Where's the best place to look if we would find that feature of human nature? The term itself, human nature, is an elusive one, not to be settled either by a dictionary or by the handbook of physics and chemistry. I submit that if it is to be given credible content, 
It is by way of human history, the history of what human beings have said and done, their reasons for doing so, their own estimation and our estimation of how these endeavors might be judged in the ripeness of time. The criterion at the center of the matter will always be whether the various undertakings promote a form of life somehow right for the creature that is living it. The standard as suggested in the previous lecture is a pragmatic one, but it's not blind pragmatism. Did it keep the bird aloft? Did it keep the fish at home in the deep? And did it have the human person what? The right words here must be arguable, of course. The Greeks had a word thought to be serviceable, but it too is subject to wide interpretation. The word made famous to posterity by Aristotle is eudaimoneia, often rendered as happiness, a rendering that would be less misleading had modernity not restricted happiness to a set of sensations and moods closer to the Greek hedone. It sounded to translate it as flourishing or good fortune or well-being. But these expressions too are not readily applied across time and cultures. What the word is intended to reach is the notion of being favored by the gods to have a good demon, as it were, or protected at least from the wrath of the gods. One who has been lucky enough to realize most fully those potentialities that are themselves judged to be of great value. The eudaimonic state itself is revealed less by outward signs than by inner qualities. And of course, at the end of the day, what's required is that the form of life being lived is yours, it's authentic. Uh, if I might leave the script for a moment. Um, I was giving lectures over a period of years at, at Columbia on the history of psychology, and it was my practice to begin with the Homeric epics, which are richly psychological. The person cited most in in Plato's dialogues, by far, is Homer. And there was a young woman in the class, and you know, Columbia students, they're dealing with the Eighth Avenue subway and taxi driver and so forth. So they, they you know, they, they have a way, they're very direct. Um, <laughs> so she raised her hand and she said, uh, uh, she said, I, I, I read Homer in school. And she said, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, it's just a lot of heads rolling in the, in the Trojan sand with their eyes plucked out. She said, there isn't any romance in Homer. I said, are you sure? There's no romance at all? Oh, no. She said, it's whatever you might want to say about it, it's not romantic. Well, I said, let me think if I can find something romantic. So here is Odysseus who has been waylaid by an unbelievably beautiful sea nymph named Calypso, who has taken a fancy to him and is doing everything to keep him there, drugging him and other things to keep him there. 
And of course, he wants to return home. He wants to return to a faithful, loving wife, Penelope. And she finally gets desperate. And she makes him an offer, as the mafia would say, an offer you can't refuse. She says, if you stay with me, you will never change. She, she's offering him divinity, you see, immortality. And he turns it down. He doesn't want to be a god. He wants to be Odysseus. And what it means to be Odysseus is, among other things, to be the husband of Penelope. Well, anyway, he gets back. And he's going to kill all the suitors who go back. But he's got to disguise himself first to get the lay of the land. So he shows up looking like, like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the first one to spot him is <laughs> Argus, the dog, spots him, drops dead. You know. uh, I mean, so he sees his former wet nurse, tells her, don't you say a word. Gets together with his son, Telemachus who has believed all along that his father is still alive. And he says, tell your mother I'm back. Well, Penelope can't believe it. So finally, presenting himself as he is, Odysseus meets her in their bedroom. And she, she almost faints. And she still can't believe it. So she has one more trick, test. She says, things are very much the way they were when you left, except the bed has been moved. Now, he made that bed, and one of the pillars of the bed is a tree, then carved to look like, a, to be a bedpost. And he says to her, the bed hasn't moved because it can't be moved. I made the bed, and it can't be moved. And then Homer says this. And as when sailors are lost in the briny deep, knowing that they shall never have again the security of life on firm earth, so just in case one of them, blessed by the gods, should lead him to security, where he once again is on earth and firm earth, so she wrapped her white arms around his neck and held him as if she would never let him go. And I said to the girl, is that romantic a metaphor? <laughs> <laughs> now, part of the flourishing life for Odysseus is realizing Odysseus, do you see? It's realizing what is most valuable in being that person. Doesn't mean it's easy, doesn't mean you're giggling, etc. It can be tough and it can be dangerous. But it's a Homeric tale that helps flesh out this classical sense, this Greek sense of being favored in a eudaimonic way, having the right kind of genie or genius or something or other working on you. The question of who is most fortunate is an interesting question. Give some thought to that question and think of the person you would be inclined to identify as the most fortunate of all the people you know. Think about it. 
It's a question that did arise in the ancient world. One of the eminent Greeks treated by both Herodotus and Plutarch is the poet and wise lawgiver I had discussed with some of you at lunch, Solon, circa 640 to 561 B.C. Herodotus tells us that Solon was summoned to Sardis by the incomparably wealthy Croesus, the last king of Lydia. Croesus would have the wisdom of Solon verified that Croesus is indeed the most fortunate of men. Some of you may have heard the expression, rich as Croesus. He's a relative of, My of Midas. Eager to astonish and impress Solon, Croesus displays his treasures, quote, this is Herodotus, curious and valuable either in beauty of colors, elegance, golden ornaments, or splendor of jewels. Later, Herodotus will tell us that, that Solon had never seen vulgarity on such a scale. Solon is then drawn into conversation by Croesus, who asks if Solon had ever known of a man more fortunate than Croesus himself. He just wants to be validated. This is like, like well, I can't you know, take some of these the fortune magazine Forbes or something, the 100 most wealthy people. Well, sometimes they, they want to be validated. They, they want the world to nod and, wow, you know, that's extraordinary. <laughs> Meaning something's missing. Um, so Solon says, yes, he has known such a person, more fortunate than Croesus. And the person he's known is a chap named Tellus, T-E-L-L-U-S an upright Athenian who sired good children and who died in battle in defense of his polis, Herodotus describes him this way, quote, Tellus had both beautiful and good children, and he saw all his grandchildren from birth and all remaining alive. And the end of his life was most brilliant. For when the Athenians had a war against their neighbors in Eleusis, coming to the rescue and making a rout of the enemy, he died most beautifully, and the Athenians buried him publicly, right where he fell, and honored him greatly. Well, that's quite a tale, so undaunted Croesus presses on. Who, after Tellus, would you rank as the most fortunate? <laughs> he's willing to settle for second place. Yeah, he's, he's got a certain grandness about him. To this, Solon offers two names, again unknown to Croesus, Cleobus and Biton sons of a temple priestess living in Argos. Their mother had duties in the temple of Hera, but now running late. The oxen had not been yoked for the journey. Her noble sons thereupon yoked themselves, carried their mother over miles of rocky soil, arriving exhausted but on time. Now asleep in the temple, they didn't hear their mother supplicating Hera to grant these fine young men the greatest blessing possible for mortals. Hera granted the wish, for Cleobus and Biton never awakened. On this account, they had already attained the greatest flourishing possible for a mortal life, and thus died in a state as close to a eudaimonic state as human nature permits. 
death now guaranteeing that there will be no reversal of moral fortune. On this account, it would be entirely beside the point to ask just what feelings the two had as they drifted into sleep, as in, hey boys, are you happy? Uh, one might guess that the dominant one was exhaustion. Their status in the judgment of Solon was established by the character that had formed within them, and thus by the manner in which their lives on the whole proceeded, with no guarantee that every hour of the day would be a joyful one. Not willing to settle for this, Croesus now would have Solon answer directly as to whether or not there is any doubt about the great good fortune enjoyed by Croesus. And Solon's famous reply rings down through the ages. Croesus, man is entirely what befalls him. One must look always at the end of everything, how it will come out finally. For to many the God has shown a glimpse of blessedness only to extirpate them in the end. You know what this leads to. Saith no man that his life is happy until it's over. Wait for the end of the story and don't read the book backwards. Well, if all this sounds alien to contemporary sensibilities, it may be owing to the profound influence that, for example, David Hume's philosophy would come to have in shaping our notions of utility, value, worthiness, right and wrong, the entire content of what we're pleased to call our ethical and moral precepts and the foundations of a flourishing life. In this connection, consider the famous passage in Hume's, in Hume's inquiry concerning the principles of morals. In section one, he says this, quote, this is Hume, the final sentence, it is probable, which pronounces characters and actions amiable or odious praiseworthy or blameworthy, that which stamps on them the mark of honor or infamy, approbation or censure, that which renders morality an active principle and constitutes virtue our happiness and vice our misery. It is probable, I say, that this final sentence depends on some internal sense or feeling which nature has made universal in the whole species." Close quote. In other words, it's finally understood at the level of sentiment. Thus does Hume, and since the time of Hume, a whole army of philosophers and psychologists, base notions of happiness and flourishing on the sentiments one has about the events that mark out the days of one's life. Reduced to a theory, Hume's position, and I say this descriptively rather than critically, takes happiness as the satisfaction of certain fundamental desires and the promotion of certain basic feelings. Ample room is reserved for important social elements, such as the approval of others and achieving high standings in their estimation. For Hume, the overarching principle is that of utility. Now, there's much to be said for such a view, and much has been said in its behalf. I would go so far as to say that Hume's position is quite contemporary. At the level of common sense, not to mention at the level of evolutionary theory, a definite advantage is conferred on creatures whose feelings of pleasure are bound up with activities that are useful. Think of the alternative. One might even read into Hume's position something of a Freudian element. 
the infant expends considerable amount of energy in draining milk through a nipple. Do you know, we've actually done measurements indicating that this is hard work. Uh, but, you know, you put strain gauges on the little infant's cheek muscles, and you can measure the work done emptying a bottle or a breast. It's tough stuff. I mean, I, I don't remember it because it was a long time ago, but uh, <laughs> uh, why on earth do they do it? The most plausible explanation for why it is that infants ex will expend all this energy is that the activity, the activity itself is pleasurable. They, you understand, the infant's not saying, my vitamin D requirements being what they are, the electrolytes and all that, so I've just got to get busy with this damn thing. <laughs> <laughs> they do it because they like it. And it turns out that in evolutionary terms, you are made to like the things on which your survival depends. Now, Hume's is one of the clearer and more compelling voices of that 18th century enlightenment that would confine knowledge to that which only experience and observation can verify and authenticate. Accordingly, if there's something real about happiness or flourishing or the right sort of life, it has to be something accessible to the senses, something felt. This, however, is precisely what Solon rejected, even as Croesus attempted to equate good fortune with externals. Should I tell you something else about Odysseus's homecoming? I just thought of. Do you know what Athena did? Here they are united again after all these years of separation. Do you know what Athena did? She commanded rosy-fingered dawn, Aos, the one who brings daylight into the world, to wait so the night would be long. I'm looking at you four girls. Is that romantic enough for me? <laughs> Damn right it is. <laughs> this is surely not the occasion for a critique of Hume's theory. As notions of this sort go, his is probably the best argued and the deepest philosophically. He's a prince of writers. You know, for all my disagreements with Hume, there are very few philosophers of the first rank that have this profile. <laughs> <laughs> so there's Hume. And um, there's a kind of fat man fellowship with Hume. <laughs> he was a great conversationalist. He spent time in Paris. And the genial and highly intelligent women of the salon couldn't wait for David to arrive. And they'd be chatting up David all along in a very svelte French envious fashion. They'd stand in a corner of muslin and point to Hume and say, and the world was made fresh. granted to Hume, there's at least one section in which the entire idea seems implausible and was judged so by G.E. Moore 80 years ago. 
I would say to philosophers in the audience that Moore's appraisal of Hume's theory will, mutatis mutandis, apply to all derivative accounts, whether these are Strawsonian reactive attitudes or Blackburn's expressivism. The core question G.E. Moore raised is whether the ultimate reference of all moral or ethical ascriptions is, as a matter of fact, certain feelings by which objects and events become desirable. Moore resists the clear implication, for if the thesis is sound, moral philosophy is simply absorbed into a kind of descriptive psychology. In addressing the question, G.E. Moore finds at least tentatively that the thesis is opaque, both as a moral psychology and as a philosophical doctrine. What troubles him, I should say, can be recast in the following steps. There are five steps I've put together to do this. First, following Hume, when I judge an action as morally wrong, my judgment arises from certain sentiments that the event has excited in me, perhaps the sentiment of indignation. Two, when I judge one action or event to be clearly more wrongful than another, the judgment arises from an elevation in the intensity of the particular sentiment. Three, when you make these judgments, your estimation arises from the feelings excited in you. Four, however, as neither of us has any means by which to know each other's sentiments, there's simply no basis upon which either of us can make sense of how the other is using terms of moral appraisal. And so five, it follows that between any two such persons, there can be no intelligible difference of moral judgment. In other words, if the thesis is right, there can't really be a moral argument. You're saying, I don't feel good. You're saying, I don't feel good. Now what do I say? I feel worse than you feel not good. <laughs> this, this turns out to be Hume's theory surely does no justice to saints or heroes. And I suspect it would grant Croesus precisely the standing that he failed to earn from Solon. Later refinements would fare no better. Let me choose one. Consider John Stuart Mill's treatise on utilitarianism. Mill was the most influential disciple of Hume's, at least in this department, and serves as Moore's targeted, uh, uh, target for the critique he dubbed the naturalistic fallacy. Pleasurable sensations are natural properties possessed by creatures having the right physiology. But declaring something to be good in the moral sense is a non-natural property. What G.E. Moore means by the naturalistic fallacy is any attempt to explain or define a non-natural property in terms of natural properties. To choose a silly example, it would be as if we asked whether there's greater justice in blue than in green, um, or whether we tried to weigh the magnitude of an evil in kilograms. G.E. Moore closely examined Mill's utilitarianism, beginning with a well-known passage from Mill's treatise under the same title, the same name. Quote, questions about ends are questions about what things are desirable. The utilitarian doctrine is that happiness is desirable and the only thing desirable as an end. 
all other things being only desirable as means to that end. The only proof capable of being given that a thing is, is um, valuable, is that, uh, visible, is that people actually see it. And the only proof that a sound is audible is that people actually hear it. And so of the other sources of our experience. In like manner, the sole evidence it, that's possible to produce that anything is desirable is that people actually do desire it. If the end which the utilitarian doctrine proposes uh, were not in theory and in practice acknowledged to be an end, nothing could ever convince any person that it was so. So this is a, a quasi-behavioristic analysis. If you want to know whether something is positive, see if the rat presses a bar to get it, or whether he presses a bar to get away from it, or whether you'll work 40 hours a week to have it, or whether you'll run 40 miles an hour not to have it. That, that is the ultimate criterion is a behavioral criterion. It's what people actually are moved to do in behalf of. Now Moore judges the passage beginning as naive and artless a use of the naturalistic fallacy as anybody could desire. Good, he tells us, means desirable. But you can only find out what is desirable by seeking to find out what is actually desired. Well, the fallacy in this step is so obvious that it's quite wonderful how Mill failed to see it. The fact is that desirable does not mean able to be desired, as visible means able to be seen. Desirable means simply what ought to be desired or deserves to be desired, just as the detestable means not what can be, but what ought to be de detested. Mill then has smuggled in under the cover of the word desirable the very notion about which he ought to be quite clear. It's just an elaborate question-begging exercise. And I mention this because John Mill is, is among the most agile intelligences in, the, in that genre. So inevitably, we move back to Aristotle and the notion of the, what it's like to be a human being. This didn't all begin with Tom Nagel. What is it like to be that? The Greek, Tienini, of human beings, the, what is it like to be a kind of thing? Human nature now and essentially refers to a rational animal disposed naturally to social and political modes of life and able to base actions and choices on rational deliberation. The aims of such a creature are not to be found in the mixed bounty of possible pleasures. Aristotle puts it this way. No one would choose to live with the intellect of a child throughout his life, however much he were pleased at the things that children are pleased at, nor to get enjoyment by doing the most disgraceful deeds, though he were never to feel any pain in consequence. And there are many things we should be keen about even if they brought no pleasure. For example, seeing, remembering, knowing, possessing the virtues. If pleasures necessarily do accompany these, that makes no difference. We should choose these even if no pleasure resulted. It seems to be clear then that neither is pleasure the good, nor is all pleasurable, nor is all pleasure desirable, and some pleasures are desirable in themselves. So much for the things that are said about pleasure and pain. This is a psychological account of just how we deal with pleasure and make choices. There are some things you choose, 
not because they bring pleasure, they might actually bring elements of displeasure. They're chosen for some intrinsic value they have, quite beyond considerations of sentiment or pleasure. Absent from this account is any reference to earned degrees, IQ points, income, job satisfaction, gosh, tenure. Um, <laughs> there's no flourishing life unless what flourishes is something to be proud of in the first instance. And where the pride is that of the proper form that Aristotle discovers in persons of virtue, a pride that is proportionate, internal, rightly earned. There is much to be learned from sampling persons' attitudes about what they relish or deplore, what they want and what they hope to avoid, whom they admire and what they hope for, both for themselves and for their loved ones. <coughs> what is to be learned, however, is the character and overall level of humanity attained by a given culture in the arc of its development. Surely were all the concentration camp commandants in all the camps of Europe to proclaim as one their unified joy and sense of fulfillment in completing their horrific assignment, nothing would change as to the proper assessment of them and their goals. Do you see this is not something you submit to a show of hands. How many for killing the innocent? Is, you don't do it that way. You're not to do it that way. That, where you get unanimity, that makes it even worse. This is, this is one of the things that got Socrates concerned about democratic forms of government, but that 51% of the morons favor something. This is not supposed to give one confidence, you see. Um, <laughs> I cite this macabre instance to draw attention to the ultimate uselessness of polls and questionnaires with all due respect to the positive psychology program and uh, the tests and so forth, the Gallup poll. Is everybody happy? Aristotle contended through systematic argument that actions have as their ultimate end just this still awkwardly understood eudaimonic state of affairs. The actor aims at what is taken to be some good, but the aim here may be directed at what is finally an illusion of sorts. It is to use Aristotle's term through a corruption or perversion of one's own nature that one might act in behalf of what is merely an apparent good. The actual goods of life for Aristotle are not, as he called them, the idle abstractions featured in Plato's philosophy, but the actual practical goods achieved within the domains that Aristotle referred to as political, economical, practical. It's customary to translate the Greek here as politics, economics, and practical wisdom, but again, these are words now so freighted with modern technical connotations as to be misleading. What Aristotle is identifying as the basic goods, those goods from which all lesser ones are derived, are the gift of a special form of civic and domestic life, received in the right way by those of excellent character, such that one has a lordly command over his own appetites and passions. It's in Book 8 of the Nicomachean Ethics that Aristotle offers his famous treatise on friendship. Distinguishing, I, I, I don't want to read to you on this because I can tell you youngsters about it. 
forthwith. Uh, Aristotle understands that a state of friendship can obtain on three distinct grounds. There are friendships that are formed because each of the participants gives pleasure to the other. A befriends B, B befriends A, because they derive pleasure, by which he means sensual pleasure, could be sexual pleasure, but it's a sensual kind of relationship. Uh, Aristotle is not puritanical in this regard. Remember H.L. Mencken's definition of puritanism, the haunting feeling that someone somewhere may be happy? Well, uh, Aristotle is not puritanical. Here's the problem with friendships grounded in the sensuous. We do tend to habituate. The same stimulus repeatedly experienced tends to lose its oomph. And so friendships of that sort have a dateable shelf life. They have an expiry date. It, it may be longer for some, shorter for others, but uh, it's not going to be enduring. It almost certainly isn't going to be enduring. Then there are friendships grounded in usefulness. Krasimos is the Greek. A befriends B, B befriends A, because they are useful to each other. I spend a fair amount of time in Washington, D.C., where the operative term is networking. And you see, so A and B are the closest of friends, um, indeed. You know that expression, if you're in Washington, D.C. and you want a friend, get a dog. Um, and again, it's not likely that friends will be equally useful to each other and abidingly useful to each other. So again, the grounds of the relationship are shifting and impermanent. Then there's a form of friendship Aristotle refers to as perfected. In fact, it's difficult to translate. The Greek is tilea philia, where the tilea has as its root tilos, the end, the that for the sake of which, etc. A perfected friendship, where each wants for the other what is best for the other, for the sake of the other. You want for the other what is best for the other, for the sake of the other. And there can be nothing that better serves another than the cultivation of virtue. So this form of friendship is available only to persons of virtue. They don't have to be absolutely equal in this regard. He's not talking about a quantitative equality, but a proportionate equality. So we see um, throughout the ethical works, Aristotle's distinction between states that are episodic and states that are permanent as well as between higher order and lower order goals and properties. Having ruled out simple pleasures of childhood and the degraded pleasures of them and, and, and degraded versions of them renders the entire operation defective and merely um, providing no grounds for a happiness worth pursuing that happiness that we should be after is one that operates in accordance with virtue, 
And the measure of happiness thus secured is determined by the nature of the virtue with which it is associated. When we get to book 10, he puts it this way. If happiness is an activity in accordance with virtue, it's reasonable that it should be in accordance with the highest virtue. And this will be that of the best thing in us. You see, you get back to Cleobus and Baiton. It's, it's compatible, it, it features what's best in us, not just some particular phenotypic peculiarity, but what's the very best in us, the most authentically good part of our nature. Whether it be reason or something else, says Aristotle, thought to be our natural ruler and guide, and to take thought of things noble and divine, whether it be itself also divine, or only the most divine element in us, the activity of this in accordance with its proper virtue will be perfect happiness. He isn't even committed on what it is. It may be something transcendent. It may be something divine. It may be somehow the gods speaking through our nature and having us reach something that transcends all creature comforts itself. But whatever it is, it gets to the part of us that's best or it isn't worth having at all. Now, having said this, Aristotle has said quite a lot. Perfect happiness may not come by way of reason may call for something else. He was open to this possibility. How might his indecisiveness on this point be understood? I think the most plausible explanation is that Aristotle himself had not achieved a perfected form of the eudaimonic life, and so was in no position to legislate the terms of it. That is, he's not writing from on high. He's weighing possibilities and options. He does know this much. Nobody is born in such, into such a state. The form of life in question is cultivated over the course of a lifetime. This cultivation is itself an activity, a series of complex interactions between a creature of a certain kind and a world of a certain kind. As he says in the Eudamian Ethics, quote, a stone, even if you throw it up 10,000 times, will never learn to fly. So let character be thus defined, a quality of the part of the soul that is non-rational, but capable of following reason in accordance with a prescriptive principle. There's something about us that renders us fit for a rational rule of law, for a life of ordered liberty. And, and this isn't something given. It's something earned, something made, something cultivated cultivated as in culturally created. Character as a quality is a potential for action under the disposing power of a principle. The quality includes centrally such affective dispositions as anger, love, pride, etc. Aristotle is not condemning the emotions at all. They are part of our nature. He'd be entirely treasonous to his whole naturalistic philosophy if he took the emotions as a ground for scolding. The question is not whether you should ever be angry, but at what you should be angry. Not whether you should ever love, but what it is you should love. What are you disposed to be angry with? 
And the Greek word for a disposition, or a tendency, or a predisposition, is hexis, the plural of which is hexes. Do you have the right hexis for anger? You should be angered by injustice. You should not be angered by the success of a friend. In the former case, you have a good hexis for anger. In the latter case, you have a bad hexis for anger. So the business here is not to rid oneself of emotions, but to deploy the emotions in a proper way. Well, let me move to the Victorian period and to John Ruskin's famous multi-volume work called The Stones of Venice. This will make sense to you in a moment. He speaks of the record a given people bequeaths to posterity. And he says this. Great nations write their autobiographies in three manuscripts. The book of their deeds, the book of their words, and the book of their art. Not one of these books can be understood unless we read the two others. But of the three, the only trustworthy one is the last, the book of their art. Aristotle's world was all too familiar with the manner in which art and architecture teach, guide, direct, exemplify. Socrates was serious in his concern that certain forms of poetry may corrupt youth by rendering them at home with falsehoods and exaggerations. He was equally concerned that certain forms of music, or what some of you call music, <laughs> dithyrambic music, would render the soul, would render the soul inaccessible to harmony and stripped of that sense of proportion and balance on which the very measure of justice depends. So when Aristotle writes on the subject of character, he writes as one fully aware of the manner in which even the most subtle aspects of the environment might significantly affect one's receptivity to what is good, to what is less good, and to what is no good. The Acropolis is saying something and McDonald's is saying something else. How foolish to think that regular exposure to a rhetoric of convenience and mediocrity can have no lasting effect on the developing sensibilities of a creature whose character is subject to all varieties of arrest and malformation. What then of cultural diversity and pluralism? Do you see how trendy I can be? I shall now address pluralism. <laughs> Should be a term reserved for grammar books, the use of the plural, but I, I do want to be trendy. I try desperately to be trendy. <laughs> All right, so I didn't go in the water, but I did take a long shower. You should have seen that crowd in their little European bathing suits, by the way, if you want to find it easy to stay out of the water, just <coughs> see what the world sees. <laughs> Less on that. <coughs> Understand that Aristotle and his epic died a long time ago. 
and our world is incomparably more complex and variegated. True enough. But we should always keep in mind that the part of the human record that appears in historical accounts generally has always been compiled by persons in regular contact with diverse cultures. Phoenician sailors may have wandered as far as the shores of New Hampshire. The ancient Greeks traded with everybody. Philosophy itself was born in Greek settlements in Asia Minor and Sicily, even at a time when the Athenians at home were devoting more time to olive oil and cuttlefish than to metaphysics. It's something of a conceit then to think that we face some new and daunting difficulties owing to the fact that the world has been shrunk by high-speed travel and the internet. There may in fact be a far greater degree of numbing sameness moving from a shopping mall in Yemen to one in Los Angeles than any Greek would have found leaving Athens and heading toward Thrace or Macedon. Setting aside their well-documented chauvinism, the most significant thinkers in the ancient world of Greece and Rome were persuaded that there were fundamental moral and juridical precepts that were right for human beings as such wherever they are found. Aristotle says with confidence that the principles of equity are universal, everywhere the same. We find this cogently defended in his treatise on rhetoric when he says this, quote, we must urge that the principles of equity are permanent and changeless, and that the universal law doesn't change either, for it is the law of nature, whereas written laws often do change. This is the bearing in the lines of Sophocles' Antigone, where Antigone pleads that in burying her brother, she has broken Creon's law, but not the unwritten law. You understand why the principles of equity must be universal and the same everywhere? You couldn't trade otherwise. There has to be some built-in sense of fairness. What counts as a, as a legitimate, decent trade? Whether somebody is getting his just due. And th this is going to be operative even between trading partners who can't speak the same language. But know that four pounds of gold has to be worth more than two peaches that sense of equity. What does Antigone say to Creon? Not of today or yesterday. These principles are, but live eternal. None can date their birth. Not I would fear the wrath of any man and brave God's vengeance for defying these. That a sister will bury the body of her dead brother is based on a law older than kings. It's the very basis upon which written law commands our allegiance. Cicero too, noting the regional differences in civil codes, nonetheless acknowledges a jus gentium, a law of nations, having universal reach and appeal. Even today, as diversity is celebrated and revered, we still confer authority on international tribunals intended to preserve what we take to be universal human rights. So if in fact you think that pluralism renders relative every juridical and moral precept, 
then get rid of courts in Brussels. You can't have it both ways. If rights cross national boundaries, it has to be because diversity is irrelevant with respect to rights integral to the nature of a human being. Get over it, he said smiling. I have only an approximate idea of what rights might be. But clearly, if they are universal in their reach, at least across all creatures of a certain kind, it must be because those in whose behalf such rights are claimed are comparable in the most relevant respects. In a word, there must be something that is essentially the case with them. Moreover, there must be some important connection between the possession and protection of those rights and the full and fuller development of those powers or properties that make them essentially the kinds of creatures that they are. We can be thankful for metaphysicians who put to the test any number of our cherished notions and thereby put on notice all forms of ignorance claiming to be wise, all forms of prejudice claiming to be reasonable. Still, even as the metaphysicians perform their necessary mission, there is a real world at once unwilling and unable to abandon reality in order to ease the burden borne by philosophers. For better and for worse, the official psychology again remains that folk psychology that we abandon only in the seminar room. The very folk psychology that finds us cognizing our world into categories and types, identifying essential properties, and placing our bets on what we take those properties to entail. It's by this same process that we ground our judgments of others in terms of character, virtue, and the public good. As strategies go, if the choice boils down to a rigorous philosophy designed to liberate us from folk psychology, or a realistic philosophy hopeful that at least occasionally it might catch up with that folk psychology, I believe the latter strategy will prove to be far more productive. That it will be more lasting is guaranteed by the very nature of things. Thank you. clapping because Athena held up the, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, we have some time for questions, comments. Uh, in the back, yes. Um, I have an Aristotle question. So I'd like to ask you if you see a connection between being conscious in the sense that you attributed to Aristotle and uh, human flourishing for Aristotle. Well, Aristotle does make a distinction between the things we do with intention, acousios, and, and things that we do without intention. The cultivation of virtue is an active process. So you can't be injected with it because it wouldn't be a virtue. I do want to say, in response to that question, something about, about the Greek virtue 
The Greeks did not have the word virtue. The Romans did. And the Romans were translating a Greek word, which you know, as arete. Now, that's a very interesting word. Generically, it is excellence. Just excellence. You can speak of the great discus thrower as robust in arete. Excellence. Excellence in architecture, in art, in valor, etc. Now you might say, well, goodness sake, that's stripped of all moral content. No. Because to be a great discus thrower is to devote a fraction of one's life to expend energy, to work on muscle groups, to have a goal, an aspiration, a very high standard, to settle for nothing but the best. All of this in the ancient Greek sense is indeed virtue that expresses itself in the aspiration to excellence. So I, I don't want one to think of virtue as a kind of sort of a prissy, I know when to keep my pinky up doing tea, and I never offend older people um, talking to themselves in the street. Um, no, it's, I'm not going to settle for my being B minus. That is to say, if I end up B minus, it'll be over my dead body, you see? It could happen. I could lose a leg. The gods might spit in my eye. You never know what's going to happen. Sophocles says that. Solon says that. Awful things can happen. In praise and blame, you know, people who cite their own books really should be brought up on charges. But in, 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 I begin praise and blame when something really crazy happens in the Homeric epics. They're going to have this celebratory thing because they're going to get on their ships and go back to a Greek-speaking world. And they have contests, it's a horse race. And the trophy's going to be given to whom? I know what you want to say, to whoever comes in first. No! Suppose everybody's riding a donkey except one guy who's riding the horse that won the Kentucky Derby. No, there might be much greater horsemanship. Shouldn't the prize go to the best horseman? Suppose the best horse is undone because Apollo decides to throw a brick in the road or something. So, so this becomes a very difficult thing. Menelaus says, no, 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 young man. You had to be got in front of me by a kind of trickery. And what does the young fellow say? Well, you're absolutely right. You should, you should have second place. So, so there's a sensitivity to all of the ingredients that go into a particular achievement. And at every step of the way, you're doing battle with the fates, and you're doing battle with your own tendency toward failure. The latter is something under your control, and it's active. You've not only got to be a conscious participant in this, you've got to be super conscious. But the answer to the question, what happened to that civilization, is it, it, don't quote me, what is recording? <laughs> <laughs> Died of exhaustion. How on earth do you keep this going? 
look at the statuary, do you think the Athenians in the edge of Pericles looked like those statues? They had lousy diets and pockmarked, toothless. No, this this is the daily representation of the proper object of aspiration. Just keep it in mind. Keep the ideal in mind. I do interviews with ideal computer scientists and engineers, some of whom just strive after technical excellence, uh, others of whom uh, use their expertise in order to change society, to help with issues <coughs> with privacy, et cetera, and others of whom design systems that help people. Are these different kinds of excellences? Well, Aristotle or all says, the same one? Uh, Aristotle says, well, you, you can use the term adaptate for all these activities. What you should be striving for is the realization of what is best in you, of all the characteristics that you have. The one you would work hardest to perfect is the one that is most significant for a particular kind of life namely the life of a rational creature. Now, suppose in the process of becoming the world's best information technologist, you're a lousy father, you never vote, you cheat on your taxes, you, you know, you go down the whole list of things, uh, in response to which you say, yes, but you ought to see this website I prepared. We can say that you displayed arete in preparing the website, but you rendered yourself utterly defective as a rational being fit for civic life. So one has to have a sense. You see, where does the task begin? The task begins with a taxonomy of those human attributes, rank ordered in terms of most significant to develop. And on this, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I thought I saw a hand. Maybe it was in protest. <laughs> I, I oh, there is a hand up. Yes, uh, and I have a question before we get oh, on. But no, 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 Professor Mike. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I was just curious um, whether you had an opinion about the, let's say, the empirical tenability of Aristotle's moral theory um, in light of contemporary psychology. So people like John Doris. Um, have heavily criticized virtue theory, Aristotle's conception of the moral life, basically as falsely representing um, how psychology works. That it's basically saying there's no such thing as virtues because there's no such thing as a stable character trait. We basically respond situationally. All these kinds of stable emotional, rational dispositions that Aristotle talks about Basically, these things can't be reconciled with what psychology tells us about how human beings actually respond to moral dilemmas. So I was curious to hear from you as someone who has um, a foot in, or maybe two feet in the world of psychology, uh, what, what you make of all this. Well, I know Doris, I don't say this about how 
us that uh, sensitive sort of thing um, said by one who's from Naughty. <laughs> <laughs> history of personality research, whether you're using personality inventories or descriptions of behavior or life histories, the most remarkable thing about the band personality is its persistence over time and condition. So the major premise of the argument is, is certainly challengeable at the level of fact. I simply reject out of hand the proposition that you can't talk sensibly about virtues, because these must inhere in a personality that itself is in a state of constant flux. So much the worse for you. Take a pill. Do sit-ups. I mean, can you imagine what your life would be like if you had no way of determining what dispositions you're going to have an hour from now, what you will value an hour from now, how you will react to failure or success an hour from now, and how it becomes impossible if you can't even predict yourself uh, to have any association with anyone meaningful to you since you have no way of knowing what their dispositions, etc., will be an hour from now. This is simply obviated by the facts of life. You see, this is a seminar theory. And it plays well, I'm sure. You've got to be very young. Well, you are very You've got to be very young to sit still for this sort of thing. And you can always be polite and say rubbish. I mean, you, you don't have to say rubbish. You can say something else. The dictionary is but, but you want to ask, what is the source of the claim? Now, 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 the claim is generally justified this way. We can show you contexts in which people behave entirely out of character. That can't be a finding unless character tends to be a stable personality disposition. So now Smith's acting out of character. You, you couldn't even have the locution except on the assumption of stability. What are the conditions that have one acting out of character, so to speak, or in ways entirely inconsistent with what you took their personality profiles, characteristics to be? So it are, are, are quite extreme conditions. Surely drug-induced states do this sort of thing routinely. Partial anoxia will do it. Having a bad dream will do it. This is why you, you look, um, let's try desperately not to be a psychologist, but when I am one, I'm a good one. <laughs> uh, and a good one begins with a very careful collection of facts, accurately catalogued, sensitive to the contextual nature of fact-shaping itself. So good psychologists don't begin with, you can't do this because there's nothing stable in the personality. You should say, go away. Uh, read a book. No, read two books. You obviously read one book, and it was the wrong one. <laughs> so, I, so I do reject, I, I simply reject. Exactly. You know, these conventions are supposed to introduce people. 
until it's about 10 years ago. And they asked me to introduce an APA convention. Um, they asked if uh, I would introduce a chap named David Buss. I didn't know anything about him. Just that he was a major figure in evolutionary science. And I didn't get a copy of the paper ahead of time, though I was going to have to comment on it. So I said, well, I'll comment on it when he presents it. You know, I didn't think it would be so profound that I'd study it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it's done a lot of research on what my generation refers to as philandering, which is to say the biological imperative males have to spread their seed and the biogenetic impulse imposed on women to preserve a secure home. And this explains why it is that men sow their wild oats while Sally stays home biting her nails and breastfeeding. And I'm sitting listening to this. It, this fellow has a following. I mean, he's published a, you know, he, he's citing himself constantly during the talk. And I'm sitting with him. He's a main person. I'm sure he's, I'm, I'm sure he's good at what he does. I'm not sure that what he does is something good to do. But, Sorry, I, at the point, Sini and I think were married 40 years. I, I said, I, I'm sorry to let down the home team, but I have been happily and monogamously married for 40 years. I, I guess for the Bell Williams in the group, I'm almost treasonous to the cause. Um, but, but he was relating this because what made this sound a science you have the same damn thing with chimps. Why would anyone think that's supportive? You've, you've already made an inference that, that you've got to work out the permissible grounds of the inference first. I mean, like by saying, look, you wouldn't accept it if I said, by the way, it's true of cockroaches, which is sliding this chimp thing. And I, I did point out Matthew Arnold's line when he read The Scent of Man. Here's a quote from Descent of Man. Our ancestor was a hairy quadruped with pointed ears and a tail, probably arboreal in its habits. Arnold says this is possibly true. I'm in no position to dispute the point. But he said, regarding this poor chap, this hairy quadruped with pointed ears and a tail, no doubt arboreal in his habits, there must have been something in him that inclined him to greed. <laughs> what Arnold wants to say is, right, look here, I need only a visual aid for this. Hairy quadruped, pointed ears and a tail, in a tree. Got it? Age of Pericles. Why does he leave the tree to go there? That is, if he's properly adapted to life in the he goes there on August because of an inner impulse to self-perfection. The answer to the question, why when you take an oath to love and honor someone, 
you don't engage in flattering behavior is because decent people do crime. You, you get it? Even, even at the risk of violating a theory. You just keep a promise, you, you know. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely right. I'm going to just add one sideways question, and then we'll, we're, we're, we're done. I just thought it was a quickie, um, quick one. Well, you said that no one would wish to be a child forever. Um, Aristotle said that. Yes, yeah, uh, Aristotle. Um, but we do have a kind of um, sort of, uh, we are attracted to some extent to the Peter Pan character. And um, I would say, Master, you yourself have a certain kind of uh, youthfulness that you have um, had over these many, many years. And, um, you know, not uh, always childlike innocence, but there's a kind of. Uh, I'm just wondering, uh, do you think that? this continuation of youth that you've been having, would uh, your master, Aristotle, approve of this? And your energy, was, your youthfulness, or... First of all, I was born in 43, so you need to get that um, oh. <laughs> uh, uh, you're, you're confusing. It's not enthusiasm. You're confusing joy of thought with the childish joy of discovery. Now, I have the joy of thought as a substitute for having lost the childish joy of discovery. Uh, I don't discover things anymore. I think about them. Now, as a child, we're discovering all sorts of things. For example, this is my nose. You take a look at an infant in the crib, they're discovering a they're discovering that actually the hand isn't getting bigger as it gets closer to the face. So these marvelous discoveries, they're world-shattering discoveries. And then you become an old bag of 10 or 15. And you're not making those discoveries anymore. The world has explained almost all that stuff. So you start turning to other things. And then you become 50. And you can't even turn to those things anymore because you're still trying to remember what it was about this thing that got it interesting in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> Blessings. Blessings. Blessings.